0: Introduction Brothers and Fathers, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory, and stretch themselves out on their couches, and eat lambs from the flock, and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and, like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Amos 6, verse 1 and verses 4 to 6. We must always beware a prophetic word from the Lord, that ends in congregational applause rather than stunned silence or the faint beginning of tears. On Saturday the 26th of March 2022, I was hired by a client to travel down to London from Edinburgh to take some aerial photographs of a baby-killing factory. The job was part of a forming pro-life media campaign to expose Justin Welby and his various anti-Christ narratives, including on abortion Throughout not so Great Britain. I was delighted that my drone would prove instrumental for an early morning flight over the notorious Ealing postcode, which routinely slaughters little baby boys and little baby girls. However, this kingdom assignment was not only to draw attention to the grave errors of Welby himself, but also to highlight the awful majority silence from within evangelicalism on which his policies bank. Coincidentally, on the same day as my train journey down to London, there was also a day of prayer being held at a venue in Westminster. The focus of the day was repentance concerning the millions of human babies who have been murdered in their mother's wombs in Britain since 1967. The guy hiring me had assumed that this event would be right up my street, given my extensive work podcasting about the horrors of the deluded pro-choice world and the systemic cowardice of the evangelical church in response. Sadly, he was wrong. Having done a little research concerning the day of repentance ahead of my trip, something within my larger intestine had knotted. Despite my daily prayers of longing for the church to truly rouse from slumber, despite years of ministry for the body of Christ to wake up and smell the cauterized flesh of the innocent unborn, I knew intuitively that I was not to participate in this event. But it wasn't until later that same day, as I stood in King's Cross train station, witnessing a conversation between two of the men who had been speaking at the event, that I had a clearer understanding as to why I was forbidden to go. As though having just attended a big church day out or a training event for an ecumenical show of organisational solidarity, The two men stood before me, exchanging pleasantries with each other with words of encouragement and affirmation about their respective contributions to the success of the day. One of the brothers stood chatting amiably with a laptop bag, probably still warm from his well-received presentation, not long completed. The other responded jovially, receiving praise for his part played and reciprocating in kind. But where are the bloodshot eyes? I thought. Where are the tears? Where is the struggle for bottom lip composure? Where is the fear and trembling? Where on earth was the weight of glory and the kindness of repentance? I stood perfectly still and internally aghast, as though invisibly witnessing the scene like a disembodied spirit, silently appalled that a day of national Christian prayer and repentance concerning millions of slaughtered children could be so comfortably combined with Christian logos and branding and self-congratulating speakers that one might not even notice or care. No, I was not to attend this event because I knew in my heart that it was not the genuine church response to the historic heart-cutting of the Holy Spirit that is urgently required This is not to say that there wasn't more than a modicum of sincerity pulsating in those involved, but rather I recognized that this was something like what God wants, perhaps a precursor to what Jesus wants for his body, something like the wholesale postural change of body zero that is absolutely required for our corporate healing and which, however tragically, the church continues to resist. Settling for something like Jesus has been the attitude of compromise for decades in this country, hence Justin Welby. It is an attitude that is more damaging to the church, the bride of Christ, and the dishonouring of the soon to come bridegroom than we might have ever thought. Is not a day of repentance for millions of human babies the worst possible contradiction in terms? We must all beware the appearance of repentant heart-cutting that is no more than a surface graze through our favourite unscathed clothing, one that still persists in pandering to the very church landscape that supports the disgrace of our idolatry. We do not simply tick a box of the most urgent command of the Lord. Five months later, as I turned on my iPhone one morning, a text rolled in from a friend in America. This doesn't normally happen. Within the text, general word of encouragement was also a query as to whether or not I'd seen a church leader's prophetic word to the British church, recorded two weeks previously. I hadn't. My friend's text included a hyperlink to a recording from a church on the south coast of England, pretty much the polar opposite end of the country from where I was beginning a new week in Edinburgh. As I looked at the YouTube's title and listened to its first 60 seconds, I felt a rare sensation of ember glow in my chronically wrenched guts as hope sprang eternal, the momentary resurfacing of the remote possibility that I was about to hear a fellow brother's summons to the body of Christ that accurately reflected the voice of the Good Shepherd. I wasn't. Depressingly, it dawned on me after another minute or two of listening that I was witnessing yet another British church leader's attempt to manipulate the national narrative away from what the Lord is actually saying to his people. The gist of this prophetic word was that the British church was fast approaching their first day of autumn, a shift of season, come Friday the 23rd of September. Although the leader giving the prophecy subsequently announced that he wasn't holding to a specific date, having originally laboured its pivotal importance. Supposedly, this day would precisely mark the beginning of a new era within the British church one in which revival and a crescendo of God's glory on the earth would be the end result. How would this ever be verified or validated, you might wonder? Apparently by redundant football stadia populated instead by an ecstatic church. Within the 38 minutes of the pastor's prophecy, some of which was to the congregation directly and some more spontaneously and prayerfully with his eyes closed, there wasn't one solitary mention of the need for the British or indeed Western church to repent. Once again, and I deliberately say once again, because this is a problem of truly pandemic proportion, a vaguely biblical notion of national revival has entirely circumvented the primary condition throughout all of scripture for our corporate healing, that the unfaithful covenant people of God must repent, that we must bow to our knees, slaughter our filthy idols and seek him with tears. Thus, it is essential that any prophetic word be assessed by the plumb line of scripture and robustly responded to by the wider community of God's people. Otherwise, the gift of prophecy becomes a laughingstock and muddy field day for the cessationists. If a national word of prophecy for the British church is given publicly, then it is wholly fitting and appropriate that a national response, i.e. non-local, is provided. But we are all to weigh and evaluate not only the predictive elements of any given word that may or may not prove true, but also to discern more generally whether or not what is being said or not said, called for, not called for, and in some cases commanded and not commanded, rings true about the man we claim to know. After all, supernatural activity does not necessarily prove God. For example... A predictive element of a prophecy may prove accurate, even staggeringly so, but is the general tone and timbre of the rest of the word entirely consistent with the rest of the Bible, i.e. with God's dealings with his people throughout the centuries? If not, we must remember Janas and Jambra's and the impressiveness of their prophetic track record. See 2 Timothy 3.8. We should all know that Satan can be spectacular when he needs to be. Have you ever considered before that the first word of the gospel is repent? See Matthew four seventeen. Have you ever noticed that when Jesus called his people to salvation, to his lordship and to their knees, he didn't need a prophetic picture, poem or visual aid by which to convey the essential meaning of his heart? Of course, Jesus did speak in heavily pictorial ways and in many parables, but when it came to the urgent calling away of his flock from the cliff edge, Isaiah 53, 6, He didn't veil his speech. Hence, he was economical with his words to bring us quickly and safely away from danger. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When I hear prophetic pastors today attempting to call the church to repentance or to conceive of a new way forward, my heart sinks. It seems to me that it is either with such heavily stylized and denominationally conditioned understandings of prophecy, that it is genuinely difficult to even understand what's being said, let alone tested or proven, or else it is infused with such staggering hypocrisy that it renders the call to action entirely mute. When church leaders like this today display courage to address the national church seen in Great Britain, but in such a way as to label all disciples who have been conscripted away from the engulfing evangelical chaos, As problematic and unteachable, it is not a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's reforming power that we are seeing, but rather a show of the gross sinful resistance of human flesh to his leading. When church leaders like this today call the multifaceted congregations of the British Church to repentance for their alarming acquiescence to the sinful government of our land, to the wearing of face masks, the gormless acceptance of vaccines and the muzzling of worship, while simultaneously alienating others who have had the courage to stand up and speak out years before, it is not a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's reforming power that we are seeing, but rather a show of the gross hypocrisy and sinful resistance of human flesh to his leading. This sinful and collective resistance of human flesh, the Greek word is sarx, to the Holy Spirit's leading is both willful and knowing, as well as oblivious and ignorant. The sinful and hardening resistance of human flesh in the body of Christ to the disruptive and radicalising leadership of the Holy Spirit is what has characterised the last three unprecedented years of church history, 2019 to 2022, and one that has only served to prove the necessity of the radical call to action of body zero, Concerning the centuries before. For more information on what this call to action means, see my first book, Body Zero, published in 2019. Exactly the same stiff-necked resistance of sinful flesh to the Holy Spirit's leading resulted in the stoning of Stephen's crushed body, despite the beauty of his biblical example. Exactly the same sinful resistance of sinful flesh to the Holy Spirit's leading was evident in concentrated form in a young man's mind from Tarsus, who stood actively by as his future family were being chained, beaten and imprisoned. Until the body of Christ truly surrenders to the Holy Spirit's radicalising leadership, a hand-in-hand leading that will disrupt and uproot absolutely everything that we have become most enchanted with, we will not be capable of following Jesus Christ anywhere, we will find that he has left us behind, or perhaps more accurately, that we were never with him in the first place. What follows in the book that you're about to read is a documenting of not only the last three years in church history, during which the Lord closed the congregations of his people, the very people who, generally speaking, have still not thought to ask why, but Also, an autobiographical account of what the coming king intends to happen in each of us when we stop resisting the perfect leadership of the Holy Spirit. As we are about to see, the prophet Jeremiah had a commissioning and waiting of God given verbs that we simply do not want to acknowledge today. Pleasant plantings of the Lord will follow, but the uprooting of de radicalised rottenness must come first the house of God must be cleared. Brothers and fathers, hear me. Maranatha. Amen. Nick Franks, Edinburgh, Monday the 15th of August, 2022.